It was uh, during my high school years, I was first introduced to CRT. And CRT was a very controversial topic even back then. There was a huge uproar against that being a bad idea, especially being introduced to the children because it will corrupt the minds of the next generation. I didn't personally have a problem with it because it really helped me understand the stories and the lives of the people that I would have never known otherwise. But in CRT, when it started, it was about white and black people. But then slowly, it introduced the people of color. And I was so fascinated that I dissected CRT. I literally cut it open. And you can see a picture if you, if, if you can show you what I did. So <laughs> I hope some of you remember the CRT. This is, what, this is the CRT when I was growing up. Now, the reason I did that, I was just having fun watching you. <laughs> the tension in, the, in this room was palpable. <laughs> and I could see your muscles getting tensed, and some of you, I can't believe that he finally brought CRT into the pulpit. My goodness, where is he going to go with this? And I, I understand, and I appreciate that. Now, if you are new here, I just want to apologize to you in the beginning. <laughs> we are on a series. This is the grand finale of the series called One Blood, which is kind of our response to the whole controversial kind of topic on racial reconciliation. So if I don't mention CRT, the conversation won't be complete. So I just, so I just let, me, let me tell you this. CRT, or we popularly know as critical race theory, is a theory, of course, and any theory is basically a framework to collect and analyze the data. Whenever you do a scientific research, like we do PhD program, like, you know, they will ask you to pick a theoretical framework that is essential when you do social science. There are different kinds of theories, uh, cultural materialism is one, and there is feminism is another, and there are different perspectives, because each theory gives different perspectives that we will miss otherwise, right? And so that's the whole idea of having a theory. Now, believe it or not, the Bible itself uses, in a very subtle way, these kind of theories. For example, you know there are four Gospels, right? Why do we need four Gospels? Couldn't just the Holy Spirit give you this one story about this one man who was God who came to this world and just, could have just given just one Gospel would have been more than enough, right? But then we know that we have four Gospels and you have been in Sunday school long enough to know that each Gospel is telling the same story from different perspective. Right? And the gospel according to Matthew is giving you the story of Jesus from a very Jewish perspective. 
He was a Jew and he wanted to present Jesus as the Messiah of the Jews and it was very clear that he had a very biased perspective on presenting the gospel. Now then on the other side you have Luke. Now Luke is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. So he is kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, we could call from today's language, he is, he is the minority, or he is in the fringe group, he is a Gentile, he is not in the, in, the, in the Jewish class. So his gospel is telling the same story of Jesus from a Gentile or even a universal perspective. And I can go on and on and about it, but let me give you two, uh, uh, just one quick example. You know, the gospel according to Matthew starts with the genealogy none of us really read, but the New Testament starts with this verse, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot <laughs> Jacob, and you know, the whole list. So Matthew tells the genealogy of Jesus, it starts from Abraham. What do you mean? There was nobody before Abraham? No, Matthew doesn't care what happened before Abraham because the Jewish nation started its beginning was from Abraham, that they are the children of Abraham. So for Matthew, what happened before Abraham was not of big significance. But Luke also tells the genealogy of Jesus. Now Luke takes a very special interest in telling you that Jesus' story didn't start just from Abraham. He traces his story all the way back to Adam. So this is, he is very, and I can give you all, so many examples, but this is a very simple example for us to understand that Luke, being a Gentile, intentionally tracked the genealogy of Jesus all the way to Abraham, not up to, sorry, all the way to Adam, but not up to Abraham. The point I'm trying to make is, it is a perspective that Luke brings to it, and I, like I said in my first class, I don't really like to call this kind of racial perspective because race as a construct didn't exist at that time. I'd even today, like I mentioned in my last class, race is a moving target. So I don't even want to bring that to the conversation because I am a scientific researcher. I, every word that comes out of my mouth, especially in this kind of setting, has to have meaning, definition. So that's why I don't use this word because it's popular. But for the sake of argument, you can say that it is kind of a racial perspective because because Luke is giving this this uh, this this perspective Matthew kind of missed right this could be meaningful this could be useful but here is a problem a theory in itself is not the problem the theory in itself is not the boogeyman right how we apply that theory see what happened in today's culture is that scientific theories were hijacked or even weaponized by the activists. The professors, instead of just being teachers, they became suddenly, because of YouTube, they have bigger platforms and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so suddenly there was, this, there was this platform that opened up for every Tom, Dick, and Harry can talk. Every, everybody has a platform. Everybody can, Im, Im, can kind of impose their opinion on I, an ideology. So what really happened was these theories were imbued with meaning that really didn't exist there. For example, for example, say, if we 
bring a barrel of so-called a narrative is inserted into this theory, which kind of involves some kind of a battle of power differential. For example, that's what happens in the culture today. So, for example, if we say that, well, Matthew wrote this based on, you know, from a Jewish perspective, and now Jewish people are privileged. Jewish people, there is a Jewish supremacy in the Bible, kind of true. <laughs> it depends on how you read it, right? And so there is a privileged class, which is the Jewish people, and Luke is a marginalized class, he is the oppressor. So now you inserted a narrative into a theory which is supposed to be scientific, which is supposed to give you a perspective, but instead of perspective, now you are getting a narrative which is bringing in different agendas and which pushes into different direction. Now this is the danger when we misappropriate this kind of things, okay? So this is not a scientific lecture, but I just wanted to mention that. When I took my PhD program, I had to pick a theory too. My theory is postmodern theories in anthropology. Postmodernists believe that all theories are wrong, okay? <laughs> Including critical race theory. All theories are wrong because all theories have its own biases, which is true. So the postmodern theorists believe that you have to interpret an event based on its context and then state your bias. That's why often when I say, you know, when I pre preach, I say, I say this, this is subtle, right? You know, I say, this is the truth as I know it. I don't say that this is my truth because that's relativism. Oh, I have my truth and this is your truth. No, that, that is Oprah Winfrey. That's relativism. But, <laughs> but, but when I say this is the truth as I know it, which really means that I believe in an objective reality, I believe in absolute truth, I have studied enough, I have learned enough, and this is what I, the truth as I understand, but that I don't claim that I have a monopoly of truth. I have a bias, I am a human being, I can make mistakes, but I will be responsible for the mistake that I'm making. So that's what the postmodern theorists are supposed to do, where you say, this is the truth as we know it, and we give our biases. So I don't really particularly like any theories, including critical race theory, but I thought it was fascinating, and uh, some of you know our friend, and my friend, and your friend, and Dr. Jeff Leo, he actually chose this as, uh, as his theoretical method. So I asked, we, we, we agree to disagree on a lot of things. So we have a lot of friendly fights and you know, all that kind of stuff. That's a, that's, a good, that's, a, that's a scholarly argument, the good scholars. And one thing I like about Dr. Jeff Leo and some of the writings I read, and he was more critical about critical race theory than many other people. And I was surprised. I didn't know he had that perspective. So uh, he is actually doing a, uh, like a three-week uh, talk with the Bereans class about the good and the bad and the ugly <laughs> of, of this theoretical perspective. So if you are available, I think it's August 6th and 17th and 23rd, because I think he might have a better perspective than I am, but we agree to disagree on many things. But if you are thinking that some of this are boogeyman, you know, when, you know, it is, it is almost interesting, it is almost, almost always incumbent upon us to engage critically with what's happening in culture instead of just trying to shirk this away and, and trying to escape from what's happening there, okay? I just wanted you to, know, to, to say that because without at least a mention of that, our series won't be complete. Let's go to the scripture. <laughs> Can you stand with me as I read the scripture? 
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be confirmed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Why don't we say a prayer while we are standing? Father God, we come to the altar. Gallons of blood have been shed on this altar for craving for salvation. And we thank you for intervening human history at the appropriate time, at the fullness of time, and giving your own life, shedding your own blood for our redemption. That is the one story that bind us together. That is the one blood that redeem us all together. And here we are at the altar worshiping you. Rightly divide the scripture to us Enlighten us with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. True worship is a sacrifice. Like I prayed, in the Old Testament, the, when the saints went there, the main activity in the temple was not someone preaching, was not just people singing. The center point, the focal point of the worship was an altar. And everybody went with a sacrificial animal. The goats and the rams and the doves and all of them were sacrificed and the blood spilled over the altar. There was a red color all over the worship they had. Now in the New Testament, as we read today, this is the New Testament worship. Romans chapter 12, 1, 2. We are also called here to do a sacrifice. You are not here to listen to a sermon and sing and worship, and this is all part of it. But the true worship is a sacrifice. Brethren, we are going to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The moment you walk into this place, you are to offer who you are to the pulpit, to the, to the altar, and there, like I said before, our identity doesn't matter. Our sexuality doesn't matter. Our ethnicity doesn't matter. We open up. We cut ourselves open. Every animal was cut and open. The blood was the same color. The skin was the same color. And if we peel our skin and, and imagine ourselves as a real sacrifice, that's what's going to happen to us. We are all having, we all have the same color inside. The moment you sacrifice, the moment you are on the altar, there is only one color. It is the color of blood. It is the red color. Red 
is the color of the kingdom. No other color. On the altar, irrespective of ethnicity, your, any of your background, the only color that matters is the color of blood. The same blood, the one blood from which we are made, the one blood by which we are redeemed. See, when I say this, some people, especially in the culture, say, well, that is kind of sounds like a colorblind theology. <laughs> and have you heard this term colorblind? When I grew up, it was considered a good thing that your ability to see people irrespective of their color or irrespective of their background to see something else. But I get it, because the idea is that by that can have a very glib, uh, you know, we could be uh, oblivious to some of the people who the struggle they are going through. So I understand why that narrative, oh no, you cannot be colorblind because you have to recognize where people are coming from, you have to see their color. But if color is the first thing you see in another person, and sometimes the color is the only thing you are seeing in another person, you have a bigger problem, that color blindness, right? So I always say that, that what the scripture asks us to do, what the altar is actually uh, ushering us to do, is, is not just being blind to color, but it is being transcending the color. You know, there's a way to transcend our ethnicity, and there is a way to transcend our identity while, if you think it is precious to you, while standing there, there is a way to transcend it. I'll give you an example. If Joanne and I stroll along a specific street in Arcadia, I'm just portraying a scenario, and then we walk, then we see an Indian couple standing on one side of the street. And then there is a Japanese couple standing on the other side of the street. So naturally, when we walk along, we don't see them. We just, okay, there's an Indian couple, there's a Japanese couple. Naturally, we will tend to talk to the Indian couple. That's not because we are racist. Because naturally, we all have what we call a tribalism built into it. Because the moment we know, we don't know who they are, but the Indian people, even though they don't know, we understand there is a certain kind of social conventions that we both subscribe to, which might be much easier for us to relate to than the Japanese couple. That's the obvious, you know, natural thing. That's, that's there for everybody. If you don't say you have it, you are lying. Because that's the way we are. We have that natural inclination, right? Because in India, when we talk, we always shake our head. You know that, Indian people? You know? <laughs> so... <laughs> The other, we know, and the other couple will understand that without any explanation, all that, right? Like, you know, that's the natural thing. But the way, what, as we walk closer, then we realize that, oh, this Japanese couple is Robin and Arlene Okamoto. Now, if you don't know them, they are like our parents, or at least we consider them like our parents in the church, because Robin Okamoto was in the search committee when they hired me the first time as the missional outreach pastor. And he was also in the second committee, which hired me as a senior pastor. So Robin would know the good and the bad and the ugly of who I am, 
in a way that probably none of you know, and Arlene is the sweetest thing, and we always go to their house, and we can sit on their floor and eat, and we can talk about anything. I, make, I tease them, and I, I make Arlene laugh, and I make Arlene cry. That's what I do with people. I, you know, they are, like, they, they are like, a, like a family to us. I don't know who this Indian couple are, even though I thought that they are the ones who I'm going to relate to. They are, they are just some people from India. What really happened was the faith in Christ, the shared vision and the passion, and the sacred narrative that bind us together. I don't know anything about Japan. I've never been to Japan. I've not really read books about Japan, but it doesn't really matter. The fact that we are redeemed by the same blood in, the, in an instant uh, helped me transcend all these boundaries to quite relate to them. See, this is what the Lord is doing here. The Lord is creating a community that can transcend racial boundaries, ethnic boundaries, cultural differences. That is the very purpose of church. And that's why I said the color of the kingdom is the color of blood. See, what really all this theory is, and one of the reasons we kind of so easily resonate with what is happening in the culture and buy into some of this narrative is because, as the scripture says, very clearly wants it, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of mind. The renewal of mind is what I said in my first sermon on racial, on the idea of reconciliation. I, to, I told you a word, kataleso, the inner, the, the radical transformation of your inner being. That's what has to happen. That's do be, be, be transformed by the renewal of mind, but don't be confirmed to the world because it's much easier to be confirmed to the world. It's much easier to drink the Kool-Aid. It's much easier to go with the flow, to subscribe to the dominant narrative in the culture. And it kind of helps us to externalize our problem and put it on these this entities we call systemic problems. And there is, it is all about capitalism. It's all about patriarchy. And because then we can just fight this, some kind of vague concept so that we don't have to take responsibility. No, it is not my problem. It is that. It is there. It, is, it, it, it helps us to externalize the evil in our world. One of the transformative events that happened in our lives, and as a family, we went to New Orleans, Louisiana, and we went there as a tourist. A, a specific incident that happened there really changed our lives. And we went to, among many other things in New Orleans, one other thing we did was visiting some plantations. And we did a tour of plantations. Now, I have studied American history long and hard because I know I don't want to just, just say, like, you know, people say, oh, you don't know anything about America. No, I know many things about America. I've studied this, I've read books, and I've listened to lectures and all that. I keep myself educated about these kind of issues so that I'm just kind of saying some stuff. But going through that plantation really put things into perspective. It's one thing that you kind of know through the books, and it's one thing you are really there. 
where all these issues of racism and slavery and all that really incarnate, uh, where how the slaves were treated and how some of them were abused and, you know, the pain and suffering, it, it's all in the air. It just completely, uh, it, was, it was a painful moment. It's kind of changed me. It, it changed us as a family when we came out. But one other thing that happened, so when we, we, we go on this tour and they will show you all of this, in the end when we come out, there's this big hall where you can write your comments on the wall, right? And they have some paper and you can write and put it. So I've, I've, I was watching this. So the black people, most of the black people who came out of the tour, generally they were writing something like, oh my goodness, we, couldn't, we cannot believe that the white people are, were so cruel. The white people are so cruel. And then I saw some white people <laughs> who were writing in that note, oh my goodness, I can't believe our ancestors were so cruel. And then I saw some tourists who are not Americans, <laughs> and they write, oh my goodness, I can't believe the Americans are so cruel. See, there's a narrative there. there is, did you see something there? Because every single person wanted to externalize the problem. They didn't want to be part of the problem. It was never them. It is either white people, or it is the ancestor, it's the Americans, by the tourists, like me. And we are all coming from countries where slavery still exists in reality. You have to go to African countries, you have to go to, uh, to, to some of the Arab countries. Slavery still exists. As we talk, we are talking about human trafficking and you know, some of the, uh, we are actually birthing a ministry to fight against it. All, all I'm saying is that this is not just an American problem. This is a worldwide problem. America and Europe are only some of the countries who are at least speaking against it or did something about it. But it's very easy for non-Americans like you know, some of us to come here and blame it all American. The problem is that the, the prob the, what I'm trying to say is we are always trying to externalize the blame and escape from our individual responsibility in this kind of issues, don't we? Carl Jung, one of the, I mean, he's called the founder of the modern psychology. Carl Jung said, one of the worst kind of evil is our refusal to see the evil inside us. And then what we do is we project the shadows of evil inside us in, onto others and say, see, that is the problem. That is psychologists saying, externalizing the blame on somebody else. See, that's why we grab onto these kind of theoretical perspective or anything that come from the culture so that we can escape the actual responsibility that lies inside the shadows of darkness that is lurking inside us. I had a real rude awakening three years ago. I believe it's okay to talk about it. It's three years since George Floyd passed. I remember it was a Monday. I watched the horrible scene on t television, and Wednesday was our illuminous prayer. So I was the first person going to the pulpit after this incident happened. I'm the first person who has to say something about this. We cannot wait till Sunday because Wednesday was the immediate next meeting. 
And at that time, I don't want to mention names, nobody wanted to say anything because nobody knew what to say. I didn't know what to say, but I had to go. There was a live program, people are waiting on Wednesday. So I thought, I prayed, and I was going through the same crisis because what happened kind of challenged my own perspective about myself, right? And so everybody was trying to identify with George Floyd and his struggle and the pain and the death but the Lord was pointing me to Matthew, the guy who was standing on top of him, Derek Schwein, I, I believe that's his name. I want you to know that there is a Derek Schwein in you. It's very easy to go for, you, to, for you to go to the pulpit and say, cry out about the pain and the suffering of others. But I want you to pay close attention to the guy who was sitting on top. But that could be you, Matthew. You have the potential to do that. It was horrifying. When the Holy Spirit confronts you, it is a horrifying experience. It's very easy for me to go to the pulpit and virtue signal, look at these problems, and we have to fight against this. But, but the Spirit held a mirror to me, and I couldn't think of George Floyd. I was thinking about this police officer who was doing it because I knew that could be me. But then I'm using some of this externalizing. You know, I'm seeing when I look at that picture, I saw a man killing another man, and I am a man, and I'm identifying with that, that issue. But then I immediately started distancing myself from that. I said, well, it's not just a man killing a man. It is a white man killing a black man. I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm, that's not me. That's a problem of racism right there. It is still not charged as a hate crime, but it's very easy for me to distance from that issue and put it on this white-black divide. And then I distance one more layer, but it's not just a racial issue, it's a police brutality. It's not just a white man killing a black man, it is a, it is a police, it's a cop abusing his power and killing another uh, suspect or something like that. See, I distance, I created another layer to distance myself. But I Wednesday, I came here and I preached a sermon. I believe it was titled, You Are Not In The Traffic, You Are The Traffic. I think that was what I said. <laughs> because that's a billboard I saw in Los Angeles. Everybody, you know, you know, the Los Angeles traffic is notorious and, you know, you know I can't believe that these crazy people are driving here, stuck in the traffic, then looked above, and I saw a billboard which say, you are not in the traffic. You are the traffic. You are the problem. I am the problem. See, this is why Jesus got crucified. See, Jesus, they desperately tried to get Jesus buy into some of these theories. They desperately wanted Jesus to challenge the systemic issues in the society. And I'm upset that Jesus didn't say anything about slavery, which was much worse a problem at that time. I'm upset that Jesus didn't give any representation for women in his, in his system. I believe that Jesus could have said something more. And something I feel, sometimes I feel Jesus' silence was kind of a violence as we bring from the narrative. But Jesus didn't say anything because each time he had that opportunity, he turned it around and put it on individuals. See, individual responsibility is something you cannot get away from if you really read the Bible. That's why they didn't like Jesus. 
Jesus did not use his platform to mobilize a new attack, a new wave of revival. But the thing was in silence what he did. His silence was more powerful than the noise we all make and that we know. Let me read some scriptures. See, the Jewish people always had this tendency to, whenever they talked about themselves, they always used the collective term. You know, last sermon I, I talked about the difference between systemic collectivism, group identity, that's the big thing in the culture today, as opposed to individual responsibility. So the Jewish people always use the collective identity. For example, John chapter 8, 33 says this, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved by anyone. They are talking about the group identity. They are very being prideful of their group identity. We, as the Jewish nation, that's the way we talk about it. We have never been slaves to everybody. Really, they were already slaves at that time. But that's what they thought. They were very proud of their group identity. Now, this is how Jesus responds. Watch the grammar in which Jesus <laughs> talk about it. John 8, 34, 35. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. If I were Jesus, I would have answered, all those who commit sin are slaves of sin. Because they are using plural, Jesus should have used plural too. No, Jesus turned into singular. Let me talk to you about your individual identity, okay? The slave, not the slaves do not, but says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. I can give you verses after verses. Another verse, Matthew chapter 16, 24, 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, a group of disciples are following him. They are asking him, they are seeking him, and Jesus turns and look at the crowd, not one person, look at the crowd of disciples, and he says, if anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, he changed it to singular. Don't don't think that you can escape by hiding inside your group identity and externalizing the blame on other people. If you really read the scripture, it is very important. It is not about us. It is about you and me, Jesus is talking about. This tendency was even more severe and you know, Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, 29, 30, 30, this is what the, 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 that's what the Pharisees and the scribes said. And he said to them, would you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you, Build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. This is what I saw in Louisiana. All those kids who wrote that I can't believe my ancestors were so cruel. I don't know how to make, that's exactly what they were saying. They are apologizing for the sins of their ancestors, but they don't want to take responsibility for what they are doing, what they are thinking. But the reality is that I'm telling you, if I lived in Antebellum South, I probably would have been a slave owner. I have the capacity to do that. 
That person is inside me. It's not just the white people on the slaves. You know that, right? Like in many kinds of people on the slaves. And I would have done that. If I lived in Nazi Germany, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't have the moral fabric to stand against Hitler. And I would have said, oh, I don't have nothing to do with the Jews. I would have said that. I don't know. It is much easier for us to stand here and put blame on other people. And Jesus says, look at the mirror. You should have the courage to look at the diabolical depth of the darkness of your heart, without which you cannot do a sacrifice here, without which you cannot die on this platform here. And without dying, without sacrificing your identity, your sacrifice will not be pleasing to the Lord. Let me tell you one more thing. See, don't hear me as if I'm saying that all the other efforts that we are doing in the world and Christians have to be secluded and only the individuals that matter. That's not what I'm saying. See, one other thing I really like about America is that there is this clear separation between church and state. I really like that. Not for the sake of the state, for the sake of the church. Whenever they invoke, the, there is a separation between church and sta state, do you know that? And so they always say that, you know, the church is interfering in the matters of state. That's what they are trying to protect when they, when they bring it up in conversation. But to me, as a pastor, I'm very excited about the fact that America allows us the freedom to have church and state separate because I believe the church and state have two very important yet complementary role in, in, in creating societal change. I have a schematic I drew, if, I, if you can show that picture. So uh, on the, yes, see it's a cyclical process. The job of the church or the job of a theologian is to change the individual, to proclaim the transformation of the individual so that that individual can affect the societal changes. And to, and, to, uh, and to affect the catalasso, affect the radical transformation of the inner self, in your individual self, crush the evil at the core of your individual self so that good men or good women will go out and create good systems, good procedures, good policies. That's why I want all of you to get involved in politics. I really like that people getting involved in politics. I believe that Christians should be either Republicans or Democrats, and I heard I talked to one of my friends that they are forming a third party. I don't know. I don't know much about politics. But I, I like the fact that you get, if you want to get involved in that, because that's the second part of that process. And we have to talk about the evil systems in the society so that the evil systems can be transformed, the societal change can be affected, so that the individual can flourish. But that is the second part of that cyclical process. The challenge is that when the theologians do exactly what the sociologists are supposed to do, when the preachers do what exactly the politicians are doing, they are not doing a complementary role. They are just parroting the same thing again and again. And my job, I always believe that, you know, like Jesus said, the heart the evil begins not just from the systems, but from our heart. And Jeremiah said, our heart is desperately wicked. 
And Jesus challenged that. All these things, all these evil things come from your heart. That's what Jesus said. Evil men create evil systems. And the job of a pastor is to effect the radical transformation of the evil men and make them good men so that they can go and create good systems in the world, in the society. And the job of a politician is to create that good system so that the individuals can flourish. See, we have to work in tandem. We should not parrot what the other people are supposed to do. We should not parrot what the politicians are supposed to do. There has to be a complementary nature of our conversation between church and culture. And keeping a clear divide yet helping each other. Now, this is a challenge, but I hope that eventually, at some point, I think America right now is at the birthing stage of that new paradigm. And I believe you are all going to be part of that. And our narrative into this is, the, is God sending his only begotten son. And he is affecting the redemption through that one blood. And as I said last week, creating the mega social experiment in this world by creating communities that transcend your color transcend your ethnicity, transcend your any kind of identity to build something really new, a true family. That's where Jesus is calling us to do. I have some practical suggestions too as I'm ending the series. See, Many people ask me, Pastor Matthew, can you suggest some books? And, you know, we need to do some reading. And, you know, that's what pastors do. We recommend some books and, you know, just get, 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 get on with it. And it's your trouble. So <laughs> I was reading. I have read so many books on this topic. And all of them really disappointed me. I can't recommend even one, including any of the books we have mentioned in our, uh, in, in our web pages. All are subscribed to a specific narrative. Nobody, in my opinion, is, is trying to think uh, in, a, in, a, in a different paradigm, in a different way. So this is my first suggestion. suggestion. Don't read any books. <laughs> Watch movies. Watch movies. You know, one of the real gifts to humanity today with all the streaming services, all this Netflix and Amazon Prime, the world cinema is at our, at our fingertips. Back in the days, for me to watch a Japanese movie, I had to travel 30, 40 miles and go to this one theater which will show one foreign film in one specific season. Now, I can just watch it right now right now with this device. What I'm saying is, there is no better way to, lo to learn about a people than, than being part of their stories. See, the books are about 
I don't want to repeat the word ideologies, but I can think of anything. It's arguments, it's the poems, but, but movies are about stories, and they are twisted. You know, there are differences, and you know, there are biases and all that, but at least it's only two hours maximum, right? <laughs> it's not like you're writing a book, spending the whole week on a book, and I can't believe that I wasted my time. Movies will tell you, movies will move you in a way, and watch foreign movies. That's what I said, not the Mission Impossible, and by the way, good movie, but, but that's not the point. But, but, but watch foreign language films and watch a Chinese movie to know what, they, what their hopes and dreams and, 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 and their aspirations are. You will realize that surprisingly, irrespective of the way we look and talk, we are all fundamentally the same. That's what movies taught me. I have worked with around at least 60 to 70 nationalities as a pastor. People open up their story. People share their stories that they will never tell their lawyers or doctors to pastor. I have heard some deepest and darkest stories. And at the end of the day, after working with the 60 to 70 nationalities, they are all really the same. Fundamentally, our cravings, our longing, it's all the same that the movies will teach you in a way unlike any other things. And the second one I want to say is, don't be reactivists. I'm not against activism. But I said, don't be reactivists, but be proactivists. What does that mean is that being a reactivist is one of the saddest things in this culture is that anybody can become an activist by sitting in your mother's basement and like, you know, uh, going into the social media and just put some words out there, which is completely virtue signaling. Back in the days when I grew up, we literally had to go and do something. And sometime you had to get, I don't want to say my story, I'll keep it for another time. I was suspended from my engineering college for six months and expelled from a college hostel for being part of a group which created like real activism, argued for societal changes and created issues. Okay, so I know what it is, but back in the days, we had to actually do it. But today, anybody can just put some words in social media and anything, and even happen immediately, you put your perspective in there and suddenly you become some kind of a moral superiority. That's a very trendy, very superficial kind of a reactivism. But proactivism is actually doing something about this. And if you feel and I, I feel that too. There are certain inequalities in this society that need to be changed. You cannot just preach about sin and it's all about this church. You have to go out and do something in the society. That's the truth. And what, but what that is, what can you do proactively is something that you have to ask the Lord to teach you. And it has to be done, not just said. I'm still debating whether I should say this story or not, but... Let me, let me tell you the story. When, you know, when the whole issue with the Black Lives Matter, all that happened, and whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's All Lives Matter, all these issues that happened, one good thing about me is that I don't use social media. So people don't know what I'm thinking. And I want to keep it that way. But my daughters at the time were Blair High School students and they used social media and they were in a literal predicament. They said, Dad, if you like something, some people will be upset. If you post something, another group will be upset. And if you don't do anything, silence is violence. You have to say something. It literally, it was literally tearing the society apart, especially for the children. So we had a family meeting after prayer. I said, hey, what do you really think? Forget all of these noises. What do you really think 
about happening in society. Let's not talk about the society. Let's not talk about America. Let's not talk about California. Let's not even talk about Pasadena. Let's talk about Blair School. Let's start from there. Let's start from there. Let's start where you are instead of just putting it on a bigger platform. So we asked them, what do you think about the school? And you know, they said, well, we believe that this is their words. We believe that the black students and the Hispanic students have certain disadvantage in our school, the way they are perceived and the way they are, okay, you feel that, right? Yes, we feel that. They don't have any scientific research, but they feel that they are part of the story. Uh, Asians are okay, according to them, and everybody else is okay, but these two groups have some, you know, they, they could use some help. So what can we do to help? So we eventually concluded to offer, so we gave them $500 each to Hannah and Emma, and said, let's do a scholarship in your name for a black student and a Hispanic student, and I shouldn't be saying this because I lost the, the reward from heaven for saying it, but I hope it will inspire you. And, and they went, and they went to the school, and last year they established a scholarship for one black student and one Hispanic student, $500 each, and they put that award in there. Uh, and first I gave, we gave them money, but in the end they ended up getting jobs, and they said we don't need the money. They paid from their salary. Uh, and, uh, and that happened at Blair School. Uh, the reason I'm saying this, if Lake Avenue Church did that, if 10 people at Lake Avenue Church did that, in 10 years, Pasadena can be different. Each time you go and tweet something about the problems in the society, each time you put $1 in that cookie jar and do something about it, this world would have been a much better place. If my little girls can do that, so can you. And that's where the Lord is calling us to do. I don't know what that is for you. It may not be that. It could be something else. Maybe inviting somebody for dinner. Think about it. I'm just giving you some moments of contemplation. Think about what you can do to affect that change. One last thing. My number, I'm going to put it up there. Call me if you need me. <laughs> See, uh, that's my direct number. If you ever experience racial discrimination in this church, I want to know it. I want you to call me directly. I'll call you back from my cell number. I'll give you my cell number because there is a zero tolerance policy on racial discrimination if that ever happened in this church. I'm not going to give it to a committee. I'm not going to give it to an elders council. I will come directly and I will be involved directly. That's my promise to you. So I want you to keep, be aware of that. This is not some kind of escapism from actual issues you perceive that we might be facing in this world and in our church. So one last thing. This Thursday is our fireside chat. We will be doing the fireside chat here. And if you have any questions, let me know in advance, or you can come and ask me at that time too. So we are going to have a conversation about the series. And I know some of you, you know, got perplexed and baffled. Some of you disagree, which is fine. Like I said, this is not thus says the Lord. Uh, you know, you can agree to disagree because these are not the essential factors of our faith. So I just want you to give, to have an opportunity to have ask that questions, and we will keep your identity anonymous the way we set up camera and all that. So make sure that is this uh, Thursday, okay? Now, let's come to the altar. I'm going to invite the worship team. I'm sorry I took a little more time than expected, but these things are to be said. So as we pray, and I, I just, I hope and pray that you would realize that when you come to the altar, 
there is only one color that matter. It is not a question about black lives matter or all lives matters. In the altar, no lives matter. The call of the king is to come and die. That is why the color of the kingdom is the color of blood. Let's go to the altar.